So good afternoon. My name is Tim Vale, uh, and welcome again to another episode of Big Ideas in App Architecture. I am thrilled today to be joined by Joe Lynch, uh, who is a long and distinguished career in software development, engineering, infrastructure, all sorts of experiences and technologies. I'm really excited to talk to Joe today. I think we're going to learn a lot about his philosophy, not on just building teams, but technology in general. So Joe, welcome to the show. Very glad to have you here. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for the kind words. That's that's what I'm here to do. Um, you know, I when we do these episodes, one of the things that always fascinates me is just spending a little bit of time, you know, getting to know you, the audience getting to know you, your background. You know, for me, when I was first starting out of college, I don't think if you had told me then you know, that, that 20, 30 some odd years out, I'd be writing software for a living, doing all these things. I, I don't think I would believe you. I, yeah. I think I had in my mind, I was going to be some like, you know, very different thing. So I'm always curious, you know, when we start these episodes, um, you know, to understand a little bit about kind of how you got to where you are today, you know, what, what's been the journey for you thus far. Uh, but I, I think almost more interestingly, you know, what inspired you? to kind of go down this path? And is it the path that, you know, maybe like me, you, you, you didn't quite expect, or was it the path you expected? So maybe just start us off by you know, a little bit of a little story of Joe here. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I come from a long line of distributed systems engineers. No. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I grew up in the, um, in the Philadelphia area, I have lived here all my life. I still live in the Philadelphia area. I, I think the biggest thing, the thing that drove me to building systems in the long term is solving problems. I like to solve problems. And I, and I think I figured out that I'm pretty bad at solving problems in the physical world. Um, so I, I remember I would like try to make little boats and things that would float and they were really, really bad. Uh, but somehow I must have figured out that in the virtual world where things aren't, you know, governed by as many laws and you, you know, maybe I would get better at it, but, um, Truthfully, when I think back, I, I remember when I applied to college, I, I, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. I remember I, I had to check off the Wharton School or something else. And the something else for me, the only other thing I could think of was physics, because um, I liked physics class, oddly enough, because I didn't particularly like math. I, didn't, I didn't, wasn't particularly good at it, but it was just a tool that you had to use to solve problems in, in physics. And I happened to like the then I, I happened to enjoy physics for some reason. So I thought for all of 30 seconds and checked physics and sent the thing. <laughs> and I didn't realize like I, I, my life would, how different would my life be if I majored in, you know, finance at the Wharton school or something it could be materially different. So I thought I was going to be a physicist. I, you know, I, I graduated with a degree in physics. I really, yeah, yeah. I started at a PhD program, um, and I'm ashamed to admit that I left pretty fast. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I wanted the elbow patches. I would, I wanted the pipe. I wanted the PhD on the wall. But I didn't want to earn the PhD. Right? And it's the it's it's the earning part that I think is pretty important. So um, that was I. So I went into technology in the year 2000, um, right? You know, during the the, the dot bomb time. Um, and at that time, it was if you had a degree in something semi-analytical and you didn't know what to do, you went into consulting. And so that's what I did. Um, my mom used to ask me, you know, what am I consulting on? And, you know, what is consulting? And I explained to her, where, well, you know, you borrow somebody's watch to tell them the time and 
charge them $250 an hour to do it. Um, so that's what consulting <laughs> was. Now, I, I, I so in, in college, I actually did some programming in C um, for, for physics labs and stuff. And I had a, a job where I wrote some software that tested a lot of um, circuit boards and stuff that had to do with the proving whether neutrinos have mass, you know, these particles that are important in, um, in high energy physics. So I went to this consulting firm. It turned out that they valued people with my kind of background. Most of the people that I worked with were actually, you know, physics PhDs and math PhDs and stuff like that. And they put them to work solving business problems. And I got to work with great people and learn how to build systems. And the thing that was great, which I realize in hindsight is not all that common, is I got to own things end to end. And, um, you know, in the beginning, I knew nothing. By the time I, I, I left, I was there 10 years. You know, I had to sell my own work. I had my own practice area. But my SDLC, if you will, started with a cup of coffee with a VP trying to understand their business problems. Um, it wasn't like, where are the requirements or somebody send me the requirement stock or something. That's not a world I've, I've ever lived in. So I'm, I'm glad for that. I left after 10 years because I was, um, I had a growing family and I needed to get off the road. And, uh, then I went to uh, a company within the logistics space and, um, managed an engineering organization there. They're a company you wouldn't have ever heard of, but if you look around your room, chances are, 60% or 70% of the stuff you have, this company was important in making sure that it came into the country. Um, And then I went to a tech startup, Series A to Series B, um, largely within the ad, I guess you'd call it the ad tech vein. Great people. I I got to work with data at a a new scale that was, you know, new to me, distributed system. Like I went past enterprise scale and went to for lack of a better term, I'll call it um, internet scale, and had to learn a lot about distributed systems, which I really enjoyed. And then I felt like I, after a while, I felt like I wasn't really growing or I I hadn't had that feeling where um, I was having trouble keeping up. Like I wanted to have that feeling again. I felt like I was spending too much time at the whiteboard talking and not enough scribbling on the notepad listening. So um, I wanted to go to a place where I would have trouble keeping up. And if having trouble keeping up is the definition of success, I was pretty successful at Google. Um, so there, I was there about five and a half years. First couple of years, I was in storage. I managed the storage efficiency org. So this was the org that was responsible for, through engineering approaches, whether planning or making changes to systems, figuring out ways to save Google money on its massive storage spend. And the thing that was neat about it was I got to work with all these people that are, you know, in hindsight, they're like, they're the people that like wrote the papers on, you know, Google file system and, um, and spanner and big table and all this. And, um, it, it was, it was a great learning experience. You know, I didn't have their expertise and I certain, and I didn't, um, I, I learned enough to be dangerous, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't able to to match that expertise, but I got to learn a lot. So the thing that was great was working with people across all the business lines because everybody has data to store, ads, search, cloud, photos, whoever you could imagine, YouTube, and also learning a lot about their storage systems and databases and working with some some great people. And 
I remember the tech lead on the team, he said something like, I don't get out of bed for less than an exabyte. You know, like, <laughs> like, like, you know, hundreds of petabytes was like a rounding error in terms of the places that we focus. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's big scale. And then, um, and then I worked in capacity planning, uh, building a system that produces the capacity plans that underlie Google Cloud's products. And then the last few years, I worked on the observability platform. I was responsible for the data ingestion for logs, metrics, all the things that you need to manage your systems at scale. And then I spent a year at um, Twilio, um, where I was uh, responsible for infrastructure, so compute databases, observability, cost efficiency, networking, et cetera. Uh, and that, that brings me to today. So yeah, I, I fell ass backwards into technologies, the bottom line. Um, but I, I've, I, I feel fortunate to have met a lot of great people and learned a few things along the way. No, I think uh, I, I love your background. I, it's it's eerily similar in many ways um, to my own, you know, particularly kind of your last comment there. I, I don't think I ever thought I would be doing what I'm doing today. Um, I was very curious. I like to take things apart and put them back together. I was uh, I loved physics also uh, in, in college or not in college, in high school. Ended up really, really enjoying math in, in college, did a lot of advanced math stuff, but thought I was going to be, I, I don't know what exactly what I thought it was going to be, but I, I had a finance degree and started interviewing with a bunch of banks at like entry-level banking positions and stuff like that. I thought, what the heck is this? I, this is not for me. So I went back and dual majored, and, and that really is what I think charted the new course. I dual majored in MIS and then went into consulting like you did, and you know, kind of the rest is history. Uh, you know, what, and started what firm ultimately did you writing about Ernst and Young, my, my first job and funny story about that, by the way, you know, it was, uh, right in the, it was in the early or late nineties, kind of right around the time you were doing consulting. And I remember distinctly, they said, uh, you know, Hey, welcome. Um, you know, you're going to start on this date. Uh, we recommend you go out and buy three suits, um, because, you know, we're, we're, uh, what a business formal. I don't even know what you called it back then, but, um, so I did, I, I dutifully went out and bought a gray suit a Navy suit and a black suit. I think I wore Navy the first day. I, I literally think day two, or certainly within the first week, they sent a letter uh, saying we've moved to business casual. Um, and so I, I, those those suits sat in my closet for years as a reminder of my first job at Ernst and Young, never really to be worn again. Uh, but the CEO at the consulting firm where I worked, which is a much smaller firm, he was old school. We wore ties for t the whole time I was there from. Till 2010, I left 2010. We had ties every day. You know, I I, I, th I do think about that now. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm at home, you're at home, we're working from home. Uh, you know, it's it's sometimes a, a leap uh, or a stretch just to think about going back into the office. But boy, can you imagine going <laughs> going into an office? You know, five days a week now, wearing a suit and tie. It just seems not anymore. It seems so foreign. <laughs> can you imagine starting a team right now, building a team of engineers, saying, "Hey, listen, we'd like you to come into the office every day." And we'd like you to wear a suit and tie. I don't think we'd get as many people as as we did back then. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so, you know, when when you and I talked prior to the show, I, I, you know, one of the things I I found so interesting, you know, not only about the background and the story you shared, but it's just some of your kind of philosoph philosophical approaches to I think you know building software, designing software. Um, I thought maybe we'd spend a little time just talking about some of those those key ideas. Um, you know, I think. A little bit like you, I, I came to a lot of the lessons I learned, um, you know, just just by working out problems that that 
I had or the teams that I worked with had. Um, and I know there's, you've got a lot of like kind of really strong ideas about, about things. I thought maybe we could just kind of jump into a couple of, of, of those ideas and, and see where the conversation leads. But I, I thought your kind of your philosophy, a lot of your ideas just around problem solving, all the stuff that goes into building software was, was really fascinating to me. So maybe we just take, take one of those and, and see where the conversation leads. Sure. Sure. I, I think I have a habit of while, while doing something like, like, you know, like designing software or participating in the process of designing software, um, I, I sort of, I sort of like take an approach where I'm trying to figure out like the patterns within there that are unrelated to the software that you're designing, like um, the process behind the process in a sense. And so I suppose a lot of the observations that I make are um, they're meta in in that sense, for lack of a better term. And all all the the things that are useful are are not original, you know, and, and all the ones that are original are not particularly useful. Um, so I, I try, I'll try all to, the better. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll try to, you know, try to talk about the ones that, um, that by definition, you know, I've learned from, from other people and, and places. They say that, uh, a, a smart person learns from their own mistakes. A wise person learns from those of others. I'm certainly not wise. And, um, it's a stretch to say that I'm smart because I have to trip over the same stone three, four, five times before I learn. Um, and they, uh, the definition of insanity is to try the same thing over and over and expect different results. Uh, so I, I, a lot of times I found myself in that situation, <clears throat> but I, I do, I do tend to get interested in these like prints for lack of a better term, I'll call them principles. So you have like, you know, the solid principles and you have Conway's law and Demetrius law and, you know, and um, design patterns and all these things. I, I, I tend to find them interesting, but I've, I've, I, I have come up with one that, um, that I think that, that's important that I keep in mind because of the fact that I enjoy this stuff. And I call it the, the gut, the grand unified theory of software engineering. You know, so <laughs> Einstein pursued the the grand unified theory for the rest of his life after um, he figured out general relativity and he died, you know, unable to do it. But I figured out the grand unified theory of software engineering. Do you want to know what it is? I, I do. Some say you are the Einstein of, of software absolutely. engineering. Some say. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been it's been said. <laughs> so I, I, I think that the um, the the. The single law in software engineering is that aside from math and physics, there are no laws in software engineering. That's it. And if you think you've found, um, if you, you know, if you think you've found a law, read this one again. <laughs> so like the, the, uh, like when I think back about all the things that I've learned, you know, like Conway's law is not a law, right? It's a, like a law is, it, you know, is something that's generally speaking inviolable. It's not a law. It's it's a it's a tendency, right? What is Con? I, I should know this, and I'm embarrassed to admit that I don't. But what what is Conway's law? Uh, it just says that the 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 software that you build will tend to reflect the communication structure of your organization. And so, if you have, you know, let's let's say you've got nine sub teams working on a compiler, you'll build a nine pass compiler, 
Um, and so, you know, that's a, that's a toy example, right? But one of the ways that you can see it in reality is you can see companies that build certain software and all of a sudden their website starts to reflect like their department structure, you know, like, or your, um, their department structure starts to align with, um, the, the way they think about their modules. And another one that I think is more, uh, sort of obvious is that if you, so I worked at Google and, they had this this small independent teams concept, which is not novel, right? Other other companies like Amazon do it, but um, Google does it in a very specific way. And within that team, nobody can tell you what to do. Like the the tech lead on on that team is is the the chief. Um, you, you know, like if if the if Sundar wants to get something done, he's got to ask a few favors. To have there's no such thing as command and control when it comes to the sanctity of that team, and they'll only teams will they 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 run independently. They will tend not to coordinate with other teams if they can avoid it, and they have very well defined um, services. And services generally don't go out, never span a team, and then they. They, they only communicate with other teams in terms of meaningful messages via quarterly OKRs. Um, that's how you can get a commitment from one team to another. This sounds like microservices, right? Like, and, and so... Um, it does? Yeah, yeah. Well, so the very, and, and what it's basically saying is because of the fact that this organizational structure was in place, you've created a very strong incentive for the software to look a certain way. And so sometimes what people will do is say, all right, well, let me decide how I want my software to look. And I will do reverse Conway's law, which is I'll make the org structure and communication structure that will incentivize that software architecture. Uh, so I was just picking that out as an example. Yeah, it, that's actually super fascinating. I mean, I'm thinking I, I had not heard that, but boy, it resonates. I mean, I had not heard that law described or, or wasn't familiar with it, but I, I, that is something that I have seen play out. Yeah, yeah. Many, it's many funny times. because you because you think you're, um, you know, you, ah, no, that won't happen to us. And But, but before you know it, it kind of happens. But it's not a literal law, right? It's not like F equals MA or something. Um, and so my, the, the, my joke about my grand unified theory is just like that. I don't think there is a grand unified theory except for literally like math and, you know, speed of light. Like there are a couple of things that, um, that, you know, are just givens and that one more, which is it's, it's harder to get, um, uh, you know, it, it, trying to get a date out of a software engineer is like trying to get blood out of a stone. You know, that's the only other one that I've, um, noticed as well, but everything else is up for grabs. Yeah, I do think you're right. I mean, there are, you know, just in the the many years I've been writing software, um, you know, you reflect back on kind of the things that were, you know, uh, let me use the term taken as gospel, but taken as law, you know, whether it was design patterns or just kind of ways of doing things that like, if you weren't doing them, it's like you, you almost didn't, you weren't part of the club. Yeah, you weren't you were a, a, a good soft, yeah, sinner. you were a sinner, yeah, yeah. sinner, yeah. get out. Um, and you're right. You know those have those have changed a lot over the years. You know, and I think actually it's a pretty astute observation because 
I think when when you look back over time and you realize that, you know, almost every couple of years, there's there's some new thing that everybody's doing that will ultimately uh, fall out of favor to be replaced by something else. I mean, I think it is actually, you know, when you, when you come across those things that people are raging or raving about now, you know, you take a step back, you think this is probably something that a couple of years from now people will have moved on from. Yeah, yeah. You're getting into a, a nuance, which is it's related, um, which is a little going a little further, which is kind of like the no silver bullet thing. Um, I think it was um, Brooks, uh, the guy that wrote um, the mythical man month, who wrote the no silver bullet essay or whatever, which basically um, takes the position that like, you may think you have found it, but there's, there's no one thing that's going to affect the, um, the efficiency or effectiveness of building software by even an order of magnitude. You may think you have found it, but you haven't. Object-oriented programming, you know, actors, microservices, enterprise service buses, probably chat GPT, though, I, though I, I, I'm not informed enough. To, that, that one's a little, a little wilder, I'll say. Um, but, it, but so far, that's, that's turned out to be true. Now, now, when I say that there are no um, laws, my, my only point there is that there, isn't, there aren't absolutes. I, I do actually think there are very, very useful principles that you can hold on to as heuristics and apply intelligently. Um, but I, I just try to, because I get excited about them, I try to be mindful of the fact that they're just that, they're heuristics. And so you take something, and sometimes what I find is a, a heuristic can be um, both a useful decision-making shortcut, and it can also be a bias. You know, it, it depends on context. So there was, um, people used to say, um, nobody ever got fired for choosing IBM, right? It's like, hey, when in doubt, choose, you know, the, the sort of leading vendor for something. And it was almost also like halfway a joke about the incompetence of, say, some, you know, technical leader somewhere who didn't know what they were doing. But I found myself using it recently where we were building a Kubernetes platform at, um, at a, a company where I worked and the team wanted to revisit every single decision. We had to figure out, you know, what kind of container registry do we want? And, and I, I found myself saying nobody got fired for choosing IBM. Like, use Amazon's managed container registry. Like, for every single thing, use commodity options so that we can boil down to those problems that are distinctive for us. It, you know, six months from now, you are not going to be... Um, thinking about, oh man, I chose the wrong container registry. You're going to be thinking about, oh, I should have made the developer experience easier to adopt this platform. Um, so that's an example of where like, I'm using it there almost as a decision-making aid when most of the time you'll tend to use it as like almost mocking the simplicity of, of some people's decisions. And I find like a lot of principles sort of work, work that way. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd love to hear more of them because I, I, again, you know, just it, it resonates so strongly. And I, I think one one thing that that I've observed a lot lately, there's some similarities and some differences, but I, I have found myself saying this in, in coaching people on is like, don't let perfect be the enemy of absolutely, good. absolutely, you know, and and that that you know that description of like searching for the best, you know artifact repositories is a little bit like that. You know, you spend so much time pouring over all of these details, which in the grand scheme of things turn out to be inconsequential. Uh, you take your eye off of, 
of of the big picture. But why? Why? Because you know, there's so much pressure on IT teams. There's so much pressure on uh, on on us as leaders, software developers, companies to get everything right. I mean, the stakes seem so high. You know, I think there's this like there's this pressure to be right about everything. You know, did you do your due diligence? You know, did you analyze every option for this thing, no matter how small it may seem to be at the time? I just think people feel like they they owe it you know, to, to someone or something to do these things. But, but yeah, what ends up happening is we just waste so much time, you know, pouring over this, this minutia that we, we lose, you know, oftentimes the bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I know exactly what you mean. And I think we all do it, you know, because I I think we, I, I don't think we're set up well for, learning how to solve problems in a land where so many things are probabilistic. We, so we learn in this environment where, with deterministic problems. Um, you know, you think about grade school, high school, college, they give you a problem definition. That problem definition is perfectly specified. There's no ambiguity. And there's, um, you know, with the exception of, say, maybe taking... Like when I say problem, I'll, I'll talk about, say, math, physics, chemistry, things like that. Not, I'm not talking about like an essay or something where you can take different positions. But um, the problem is fixed and then you just focus on the solution. And your job is there's only one way to do it usually, but where I have certain well-defined outcomes that I have to achieve in that solution. So you've got to have the best solution. And that's what we're taught. And what I find is that very, very few uh, business problems or technical problems uh, are framed that way. Most of the time, your first problem is defining the problem. And my experience is that we often go from, um, if you think about it logically, the steps that we might take when we're designing software, we start with like, you know, there's the background, the real stuff that you can describe, you know, the phenomena, if you will, um, the stimulus for getting you to think about it. Then you you form some problem definition. Then you um, say, okay, I've got that problem. Now let me create a solution space. Maybe I've got five different ways to solve it. Then I go and I zero in on the one that I think is best. And then I design the hell out of that one. And, and only at the end of that process do most people start to get peer review um, it, presuming for a second that the problem is large enough to merit peer review. I mean, not every problem is. But what happens, I, I find, is if you if you watch people that can't, that are just really blunt on design docs, you know those people, right? There's there's the some people that are always like, oh, looks great, and then there's other people that just tear design docs apart. And if you watch them, there there's often two. Like when people are giving meaningful comments. They often come in approximately two flavors. One is they're like, yeah, that's right, but don't forget to update the XYZ while you're in there. And oh yeah, and remember we had to use the new RBAC framework over here. Those are like sort of aiding the the general discussion. Um, and then you'll have people that are like, but why are you doing it this way? And, and like they, they don't say exactly that, but but that's what they're they're fighting the fundamental of what the design doc is um, trying to do. And if you look back, if, if you unwind it, oftentimes it's a problem. They're, they're indirectly pointing out a problem with like the framing. Um, 
or the, a problem with the analysis where they've chosen which path to do. Given the fact that, you know, for a framing and that they chose path three, they're like, yeah, this is a reasonable design for path three. But I kind of think you should have chosen path two, or I think you have the problem framed wrong. But we often don't talk about these things. Um, we often don't even use the term. We talk, say, we talk about solution space a lot. How often do we hear the term problem space? Like, I, I usually try to, when it's a, a tough one anyway, when it's non-trivial, I, I usually encourage people to, like, think about the problem space. But it's a space because there's a lot of different ways to, um, to define a problem. Um, you can, I, 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 there was a, a really good book that I read, and um, because I'm going to diss it in a small way, I won't name the, name the book. <laughs> because otherwise, it was actually a really, really good book. And, and one of the things it was good at was, it was, it was talked a lot about how you can apply design, you know, basic design principles to project structure. Um, and it, it was very well thought out, but they were, they were using this one example that was a literal example for that, that they did. And they were defending it as like, this was this great example. And in the beginning, they're like the requirements and like, we gathered the requirements and the requirements were, we need to build the most generic infrastructure that will allow us to be infinitely flexible. Does that sound like what a business person would say? No, that's like, <laughs> you know, that's that's an engineer's confirmation bias at work, which is, oh, we always need a generic framework that's going to do X, Y, Z. And, uh, and so, I don't know, I, I think you often have to inventory the problem space and then, you know, then pick, go with the right best um, problem definition and then inventory the solution space. And sometimes you need to do, for lack of a better term, what I would call a comparative analysis of options and get people to buy into, oh, we're going to choose option three and here's why. Then design option three. I don't mean to suggest that it has to be this mechanical thing, but that sometimes the disconnect is way back in the problem definition or in the analysis. It's really fascinating because, again, I, I think, you know, I, I've tended to see this a lot. And we we tend to see this, I think, sometimes with the customers that we interact with or the prospects that we interact with. Because And and, and maybe I'm, I'm thinking about it a little bit differently or taking it in a slightly different direction. But, you know, I think if if there hasn't been true collaboration on defining the problem, right, the problem space, and you allow a group of people to kind of move very quickly down into solutioning, right, and then you get there, right? And that's when you bring in a broader team to say, hey, what do you think, right? Boy, it's really hard to pull people back from the investment of time they made in coming up with the solution. They become very emotionally attached to their ideas, things that they've done, right? And so, you know, it becomes, you know, especially if, if, the, if, the, if the concern isn't around the solution, but way back before the solution was created in the problem space, you know, just, you know, winding people back. I mean, I've been in countless meetings um, where, you know, people just, it, it's, it's human nature, unfortunately. It's not that they're, you know, they're bad people it, it, to be defensive. Well, what do you mean? You know, this isn't the ideal solution, well, you know, and it, it becomes very difficult. So I think I really like this idea of like focusing in on the problem. Let's get that right. Let's make sure we get that right before we move into the solution. Because once we've committed and kind of gone down the solutioning path, you know, it's really hard for people to accept kind of a rewind on that. And, and, and human nature is just, it's tough. Yeah, th think about going even further. You, you Sometimes you stumble on what are conception problems at code review time. 
right? Oh, yeah. It's even worse. Definitely. Right? Definitely. Like, like, there, like 13 steps before, there was a misconception. I, I think it was Rich Hickey is probably one of my favorite thinkers. Um, uh, like, if, I don't know if you've ever listened to any of his stuff, but if, if not, uh, definitely watch Simple Made Easy. It's probably the best, for, for me anyway, it was the most interesting um, it's sort of like meta, I guess, similar to this discussion. It's is the most interesting tech talk that I've I've ever seen. A simple made easy. But um anyway, yeah, he 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 talks about um a lot of this kind of stuff. But there's um the, the thing that's very real is people dispute the, the people dispute the actual math due to the research anymore. But Barry Barry Bohm, who was one of the Probably, I don't know if, if not the most prominent, one of the most prominent software researchers to ever live, um, coined this idea of the the cone of uncertainty, where you start out with um, so you know you, you start out with so much uncertainty as far as what you're trying to do, and you know you explore, you explore, you design, you design, you develop, you develop it, you get it out there, you move it. Before you know it, you only at that time do you, does it really start to come together, right? And he makes the point that, um, which is obvious, the cheapest time to fix something is way back here. <laughs> and just... um, but but he actually did research to show like the math of how much more expensive it is to fix something when you're you know when you've got a misconception in production versus when it's just at the whiteboard. I mean, the, the numbers are enormous. Well, you know, there, and, and two things come to mind on that. One is, you know, the, this idea of OKRs, and I, and the, the connection here is, you know, maybe a little bit tenuous, but you know, what I have found is that, like, we get OKRs can be great, but they they do define these touch points between organizations, right? And and sometimes, you know, as you were describing, um, they may be the only thing that's really holding these two organizations together, right? You know, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna have this this shared OKR that that makes this one thing. Yeah, you put them on a message bus and like, you know, and you get an ACK from the team. <laughs> yeah, and, and what I've found sometimes is that that this problem that we've just been discussing though kind of finds its way into that. Like, there's been all of this, all of this thinking about a problem, all of this designing a solution, getting to the point where the solution is almost ready, and it's at that point and at that point only. That we say, let me share it cross-functionally. You know, let me share it with this other group because this OKR said that I should or, or or would or did. You know, and to your point, you know, at that point, it's so late in the game. Like the idea isn't to necessarily share the finished product and get input. You know, when you're building and and trying to solve really complex problems and building complex software, just as you said, you don't want to you don't want to put all this time and effort to design and and all you know become so deeply emotionally vested share it so late that it's like, well, wait a minute, this isn't anywhere near what we wanted. And now we've got to go right back to the beginning. And I think, I think sometimes these like silos and organizations, you know, that, that kind of create this environment where I'm only going to show you something when I think it's done and ready. I don't know about that. Yeah. I, I, um, and I think there are legitimate reasons why that happens. Like, like you said, due to human nature. And if there's one other thing that I, think about often um it's humans build software <laughs> so, you know yeah. software doesn't at least for now yeah yeah at least for now <laughs> wait till chat gpt6 yeah that's right um and the thing and so what that means is like all the vulnerabilities that we have as humans 
um, think about how you communicate with your sibling or your wife or your cousin or whatever, somebody where you haven't, every relationship you have is imperfect. Even somebody that you know really well, there's disconnects all the time. And, and we are in that sense, a capital S system in like the systems theory sense. Well, imagine the complexity of the system of getting a team of just a single team of seven to work together. And then an organization of, you know, cockroach, I don't know, you know, 150 engineers or something doing something as complicated as what you're doing. It's, it's a challenge. And so what I, not that I, this is not intended to be a green unified theory, but I have found an approach that I, um, that I think tends to work well at the, um, or maybe it's just because it's, it's, it's flexible and is resilient, um, but for getting through that validation process, and I, I call it uh, concentric circle validation. <laughs> um, not not that this is, and it's not novel, but but there's what I, and, and part of it might also be catered to the way that I am. Uh, it, it might not be the right. So so for example, if you talk to people, they're like, "Whoa, we got to get the right people together. Let's get." Let's set up a con- a conference call with eight people. Oh my gosh! I don't want to start a you know I don't want to start like exploration of solving a problem with eight people. Um, you know I, I don't assume that that's actually a good way to go about it. So usually I I would prefer that there's there's one person. For, first off, you you, ha- you have to define a lead. That lead has has full decision-making authority uh, within that within that space, unless there happens, and there, there, there might be like tech leads that can technically overrule them, but more or less, they're just there to support them. But you, like, if somebody's going to own a design that within that space, they, they have the ability to make technical decisions where it's very clear who above them um, does, but there's crystal clear decision-making authority. Um, and you, usually... What I personally, if I'm doing it, what I I need to sort of scribble on a notepad, think about it, sleep on it, you know, not take a long time. And well, in fact, Rich Hickey has a another talk called Hammock Driven Development, where he talks about this. <laughs> <laughs> he promotes laying around in your hammock, um, thinking about this. But anyway, like I, personally, I find I have to noodle on it, you know. And then what I do is I have my one or two trusted design partners, and. I've only figured out through experience there are a couple of people where we have close enough values where we sort of groove in you know communication wise and we can feed off one another and communicate in something of a shorthand so it's not so much that because I have these two people that these other two people aren't great it's just somehow there's a strong connection there I it's a little hard to describe but I think I think you know what I mean. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. So you, they're your go-to people. You explore with them. Um, okay, now it's, you know, yeah, it makes sense at the whiteboard. Meanwhile, personally, I haven't written anything down yet necessarily. Some people will say that that's bad. Um, but I, the first thing I wanted, I want to fail fast. And and writing it, writing something down for me is not the fastest way to fail. Like, I want to disprove the the approach in a sense. And so I'll show it to people, have them beat up on it. Um, and then start to basically, it's like, th- that's my level one 
um, review. And then I go out to level two. And that's what I mean by a concentric circle. And they have to be small chunks of people, not big chunks of people. So it's like, okay, I've got my level one peer group. Now I want to bring in my level two ones. There's the ones that are like the really tougher tech leads who understand the related modules and they're going to tear it to shit. But I know that if it gets through them, it's solid. And then after that, it's like, okay, now it's for broader consumption. I'll take your comments. But frankly, unless you find a fundamental flaw, it's getting pretty baked, you know, and like going down a process like that, it's almost like getting a bill through Congress, I suspect, you know, just tiny little bits, getting one or two people on board and then gradually working out. No, I think I I think it makes a ton of sense. It's a it it strikes me as a very efficient way because, yeah, you, you put these ideas in front of large groups, everybody kind of at different levels of influence, different levels of of knowledge, it can become, and I've seen this play out again so many times with these, these meetings where you're just hoping to get, you know, a little bit of feedback turned just into, you know, the wild, wild west, uh, because it's just, it's not well controlled, not well, you know, not well organized ultimately. Yeah. And ultimately you're, you're trying when you, you're, you're trying to deliver business value, not software, you know, when you're focused on building software. Um, and, you should be optimizing for time to value, right? And and there are a lot of um, ways that you can do that. Um, you know, one, but but you know, obviously, I could type faster, but that's not putting aside again ChatGPT or typing faster. Those aren't like the best. Those aren't the the best ways to minimize mean time to value. It's to re, it's to reduce your cues your dead time, right? And those cues, some of the biggest ones are, oh, I wrote this document, but I got to get on the calendar with the product manager and they're out for four days. Um, and then when they get back, they've got, and I'm not picking on product, I'm just making something up. Then they're, they got to dig out of their email. So that, you know, there's, there's another couple of days. Well, now I've created waste because I've paged this out of my head. Um, I don't remember what I was thinking anymore. Now I got to page it back in. That then the product manager gives me feedback and I realize I was off base in some way. I go back, do stuff. Then I got to get on the calendar again, right? Then And then, then I, I'm overly expansive in who I ask to, to review my design because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, right? The, the issue is efficiency and inclusiveness are at odds sometimes. And I don't want everybody's vote on everything, including my own. If we, if I want to know what kind of pizza we're ordering, that's a fully democratic decision. But if we're going to, you know, decide, you know, how, how we're going to build module X, Y, Z, there's a small set of subject matter experts that I want to weigh in. Um, and, and, and ideally that's it. And, and I don't want everybody to comment on it because it's inefficient and it'll, it'll cause that queuing and you'll never deliver the, you'll never deliver the value. So, Joe, I know we're we're kind of coming up on the, the time we had allotted. Honestly, I think you and I could probably talk about a whole host of other things for for much much longer. So, so maybe what we'll do, uh, maybe we'll just call this part one of the uh, the Joe Lynch Grand Unified uh, <laughs> Theory series. Uh, so, stay tuned for part two. Please uh, don't put that title out as clickbait. <laughs> it's obviously sarcastic. <laughs> part part one of the Joe Lynch Grand Unified Theory. Coming to you live. Uh, no, I, so maybe we close up on this because I, I mean, the truth of it is, I, I think this has been a fascinating, you know, set of insights, and would love to keep talking with you about them. But 
you know, as we've ended maybe a handful of other podcasts on just kind of, you know, a little bit of looking forward, I'm curious, given how well read you are, you know, how thoughtful you are in so many of these things, are there things, you know, in the industry, technology, anything right now that's kind of catching your eye is like, hey, this is something, you know, that that I'm going to, you know, I'm personally interested and want to spend a lot of time researching, looking at paying attention. I'm just kind of curious what's what's caught your attention over the last six months. Where are you going to be focusing some of your time and energy? You yeah, there, there are a few things. Um, one of them is, uh, frankly, uh, directly related to Cockroach TV. That's why, you know, you know I, I, I communicate with you guys. Uh, I, I think you're the best at what you do. Um, I think you, you're you're out in front leading and you're trying to simplify the overall experience of developing high availability services. This is like a really, really big deal. I think a lot of people don't, they aren't caught up to it yet, in my opinion, because the, the, the new SQL database is not yet a household primitive. It's not yet commoditized. And I think the commoditized is not the right, it's, it's not yet normalized. It's, it's kind of like, you know, people heard about the spanner thing and it's like that's whiz bang and rocket chips and you have to be on Google to use that. And then there are other ones that are um, coming along and, hey, I hear about CockroachDB and Yugabyte and things like that. But I think to be, um, to be a, a household tool that any architect at any company will bring out is AWS has to come out with a competing product. And, and as soon as they do that, I mean, they've, it's only a matter of time. It's even, you know, there's even mm-hmm. references to it online to them um, working on it, right? As soon as that happens and people start to get a sense that they can get all the um, guarantees of a traditional relational database while still having, while having high availability and horizontal scalability and all the things you couldn't have before, um, I think it's great going to simplify people's lives. And the thing is that, we need this in order to be effective in developing software. Things are getting more complicated, not less. And all the things that you have to understand in order to build an effective system these days, it's sort of um, mind-blowing. And something like uh, CockroachDB in the way that you can be declarative about distributing um, the data and things like that, it's... it's um, huge deal as far as I'm concerned. It should be, um, I think it'll change the game. I think it'll take away a lot of the workloads from NoSQL databases, not all of them, um, but a lot of them. And then I think that a lot of CIOs who are used to having conversations like, how much downtime can you afford? They won't have to have that conversation anymore. Um, A lot of, you know, the play for for these... um, databases has often been like scale and people say, I don't need that. I am not at Google scale. Sure. But do you want to go to your, you know, your head of operations and beg for downtime? Like no CIO in their right mind would want to do that. Well, what if high availability just sort of came for free? I think that could really change things. So um, just give me the 50 bucks after the show. Um, for the for the plug, that's that's we we, t- we took your home address yeah, yeah. down that's before one thing we started. I'm yes, about. and then the other thing I'm thinking about is I'm a little concerned that um, with, with the Kubernetes obsession in the community, and I'm concerned that um, it's sort of being perceived as that silver bullet. And 
what's happening is a lot of people are making the awful approximation that somehow Kubernetes is the only way that one will deploy software and that it's the only way that will people will ever deploy software. And that's obviously not true. There are still um, and probably will always be workloads that belong on VMs. There's serverless, there, you know, edge functions, all, all kinds of stuff. And, and the industry, you know, we've got WASM going, we've got, you know, eBPF going. There's all, we're, we're always inventing new ways to build software. And what I find is that everything is so Kubernetes obsessed that the, what we're, it's, it's creating this, um, this fork in all of our technologies. And it, anytime I go and read about a, a new project, oh, have you seen the um, guacamole framework? Oh, let me learn about guacamole. You click on it um, and you're, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread for, you know, scaling your wiggle wands on Kubernetes. Everything is like for Kubernetes. And um, well, it's like, hey, what about the rest of the world? The, the truth is that um, Kubernetes is complex. I'm not, I'm not forecasting its downfall or anything like that. It's, it's a great, it's a great primitive, but it's not the only thing. And I'm concerned that um, it's making our life pretty complicated, and people are making some bad assumptions. Like the story of multi-cluster Kubernetes and and having VMs talk to Kubernetes, talk to you know, lambdas like that network connectivity story is so complicated. Service meshes, and I just think there's a lot of incidental complexity there. And I don't claim to know what the answer is, but my spider sense say, says that we're going to be writing about this five, ten years from now, just like we did about. Oh, remember the days we thought enterprise service buses were great things? <laughs> oh, I. You know, I mean, having been on the front lines of this for a while, I mean, I, you know, it is enormously complex and it is a hindrance. It, it's a hindrance and it's a, it's another kind of black box to some extent where problems exist and people have a really difficult time troubleshooting them. And it's, 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 a, it's something I've talked about in a few other podcasts. It's, it, it, I agree with you that it's, it's one of those things that it, it's all the rage, but I'm just, I'm not sold on on whether it's it's the future for everything, as you just described. Well, and the way that I look at it is I, I'm even putting that aside. Pretend I were sold. Pretend you were sold for a second. There, it's, there's just, it's Im- simply impossible that it will be the only way that one, build, you know, deploys software. You would say to people like, oh, you can run MySQL on, on Kubernetes. Why would you? You know, like it, one of its most foundational principles is that it, you know, it wants services to be disposable. Um, that's a great principle for what it was originally designed for. And, um, you know, uh, at, at Twilio, for example, we had stateful um, uh, phone call connections that had to be up for up to 24 hours. Right. Like, can you imagine like that, that, that amount of state, you know, it's facilitated via the SIP protocol and UDP and all kinds of jazz. But can you imagine trying to do that in Kubernetes? It just wouldn't make any sense. So even if you love Kubernetes, the idea that somehow it's the only way is just, it's silly. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Well, listen, uh, Joe, love the time together. Likewise. Thank you Appreciate so it. much for joining us on the call. And I, I, I do think we're going to do a a phase two. All right. A part two. A lot of fun. All right. Thank you. Yep. 
Thanks for listening to Big Ideas in App Architecture. If you like what you hear and want to watch the episode, head over to our YouTube page linked in the description below. Also, be sure to rate the podcast five stars and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Bye.